Father in heaven, we thank you for these accounts which have been preserved down through the centuries of your entering into space and time and demonstrating your power and your love, your dramatic concern for us one by one. Take these moments now as we consider Jonah and what you did through him back in his day, that you might take us and give us that second chance to begin again with you and be faithful to your calling. So in your mercy, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills, Lord Jesus, and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your namesake. Amen. Well, Jonah has been called the prodigal prophet. The book of Jonah is only four chapters long, and they are dynamite chapters. Again, we encourage you to go home and read them through. Sit at one sitting and read right through the account of Jonah. I trust that in our preaching about it, you'll be inspired to go home and do just that. Four chapters of dynamite. But to set the context, they date Jonah around 800 B.C. And this isn't some sort of fairy tale or myth or allegorical story. He's a real factor in history. In fact, if you were to turn back to 2 Kings, the book of Kings in the Bible, chapter 14 and verse 25, it places Jonah in an historical context. Listen to these words. It speaks about the borders of Israel being extended all the way down to the Dead Sea. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, same chap as we will be reading about, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So he's placed in an historical context way ahead in the Bible of getting to the book of Jonah. Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, alludes to Jonah. Listen to this. The Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. It's amazing. For all the miracles he did, it was as if they never could see enough or with each one find an excuse not to believe and to believe in Jesus as God's Messiah. So what Jesus responded with was this. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh 
And Jonah was sent to Nineveh. And as you will read, he didn't want to go, chose not to go. God said go, and he said no. And then the whole story unfolds from that. But Nineveh was one wicked city. And no way did Jonah want to go there and preach any kind of hope. So none will be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. The men of Nineveh, it says, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here speaking of himself. So we place Jonah in an historical context, verified from an historical document, second book of Kings, and the witness of Jesus looking back. He, the Messiah, the Son of God, verifying the reality of Jonah and those three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And that almost as a sign, said Jesus, of what they will see. Three days, three nights in the grave, and he will be raised again. So Jonah is an historical factor with which we have to deal. And so is the big fish story. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, very famous preacher in the old days in England. He actually died just about the time of the Second World War. But G. Campbell Morgan says this, the great fish has been looked at for so long and studied for so long, we miss the great God who pulled off the miracle. Well, to take a look at it just for a moment... The Princeton Theological Review of October, granted, 1927, tells of two incidents in which a man was swallowed by a whale and vomited up shortly thereafter with only minor injuries. But there is one most striking instance which is reported and recorded in a book by Francis Fox called 63 Years of Engineering. Very unlikely place for this to turn up. It's verified by scientists, including a Frenchman, De Parville, and the scientific editor of the Journal of Des Debats in Paris, Paris. Here's what it accounted for. In February... 1891, the whaling ship, the Star of the East, was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands, and the lookout sighted a large sperm whale three miles away. So two boats were lowered, and in a short time, the harpooners were able to spear the creature. One of the boats was capsized as that whale, as they drew close to it, lashed with its tail. One of the men was drowned. Another was completely unaccounted for. The rest were rescued. After they cut the fish, huge whale, took several days in pieces. 
they hoisted the stomach onto the deck of the ship. And the workers, the sailors, were startled by something, and here I'm reading, in which it gave spasmodic signs of life in the stomach. And inside, they found the missing sailor, doubled up and unconscious. He was laid on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him. That article goes on to say his face and neck and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment. Bartley, that was the name of the man, affirms that he would probably have lived inside the house of flesh until he starved, for he lost his senses through fright and not through the lack of air, is what he said. So verifiable accounts from history of similar amazing things, but the great miracle as it unfolds in this story, was as as they threw Jonah into the water, the seas were calmed from the raging storm, but God prepared this great fish which swallowed him, and he was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and vomited up on the shore. And God gave him a second chance. One commentator has analyzed these four chapters of dynamite. Let me give you the four headings. The first is rejection. Jonah's rejection of the calling of God. Jonah the prophet. Jonah the anointed saying no when God sent him to preach to Nineveh. In fact, when he got on that boat in Joppa, he headed south. Nineveh was north. He went in the opposite direction. Chapter 1, rejection. Chapter 2, reflection. In the belly of the whale, he's praying and meditating and speaking to the Lord. And he says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So chapter 2. He's reflecting and praying and talking to the Lord about his rebellion and God's mercy. Chapter 3 is correction. That is the second chance. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And the result was an overwhelming response of the people in repentance and faith and including the king who repented. When the nation heard him preaching, when that city heard him preaching, they repented in sackcloth and ashes and the the word came to the king of Nineveh And he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And then he issued this proclamation in Nineveh. And it was a proclamation calling for repentance and everybody to fast and to pray. Most unlikely response. A wicked, wicked nation. And they repent at the message that Jonah brought. And then the last chapter, chapter 4, 
most unlikely response. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He objected. He didn't like it that God called these, what he regarded as merciless, wicked pagans, that they actually did repent. Look at what he says to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, that is, to disobey you and not go to Nineveh. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knew who God was. He didn't want to see God rescue the Ninevites. And he was ticked off when they responded so positively to his message. That's how much he despised them. Well, that all demands a series. But there are three things I want to draw to your attention. Lessons to be learned by us today. The first is this, that God, our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is merciful. He relents him of the evil. He wants us to come. He wants people around us to come, who at this present time may be rejecting him. Family and friends. The great opportunity of the Franklin Graham event at the consul is that every one of us, every one of our families, each of us individually with people we work with, live amongst, part of our families might be invited to come and hear the gospel. Think of the most unlikely person. I have to tell you that when I was invited to go to hear Billy Graham, I would have looked like the most unlikely person. But God is very, very merciful. And I don't know whether you've been disobedient in the past, but the chances are, as with me, so with you, you have been. You've been cowardly, or you've been disinterested, or you've given it this kind of say la vie message, whatever will be, will be, and left them to their own devices. But listen carefully. All of us who say we know and love the Lord are under commission, no less than Jonah was, to go and make disciples of all nations and draw them to the Lord via our witness and this marvelous organization that will draw all the churches of Pittsburgh together and thousands of people be gathered in the consul center for free. And you've got friends who would be interested just to go and hear the music and be there for free and get caught by the gospel. Think of the most unlikely one. But one thing you don't want to hear is this. I can tell you three things you don't want to hear God say to you. Number one, I don't care about you and your disobedience and is indifferent to you. You don't want a God who's indifferent to you or the people you care about. Secondly, you don't want God to say, okay then, I'll send someone else. You're replaced. You're done. You don't want to hear that. And the third thing you don't want to hear is this. I'm done with you. 
I wash my hands of you. You're on your own now. You don't want to hear that. I know you don't. So week by week when we worship here, opportunity by opportunity where you work and where you live and the people you shop with and play with, the opportunity for you to be obedient to the Lord and he gives you yet another opportunity. Don't blow it. God gives you this new opportunity, this new day. Do not blow it. The second thing that we learn is this, that God is at work when things seem the worst, that is in the midst of great wickedness. We see great wickedness around the world today and we see great wickedness at the heart of our nation, amongst ourselves, in the media. To the point that people are constantly saying to me when they find out I'm a pastor, do you think we are in the end times? That's how sensitive many are at the wickedness that is around us. But God is operative in that season of great wickedness. Who would have ever thought that the powerful nation and the wicked nation with Nineveh as its capital would be brought to sackcloth and ashes and repentance? God is at work. And when things seem bleakest, we are on the edge of seeing dramatic reversals. At the time of the Great Awakening, that was in the 1700s, we are still living off of the aftermath, the fruit of the Great Awakening. Princeton College, Harvard College, both of them were instituted as a result of to the glory of God in those days, the Great Awakening. And the church spread and got organized in the most amazing way because of the Great Awakening. People like Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and others saw tens of thousands of people in the United Kingdom and here in the colonies in the USA come to faith in the 1700s. It was a complete reversal. But listen to this, when John Wesley was at Oxford University as a young man, England was so wicked, so calcitrant, so hardened against the gospel that the Bishop of London said in his writing and preaching that he did not expect the Christian faith to survive his generation. How wrong he was. Bang, came the Great Awakening. And England, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland was absolutely changed. And the colonies of the USA radically changed. Get your hands on the journals of George Whitfield. He's one of my heroes. He was the great preacher of the Great Awakening. It's a significant volume. I read it to my wife on our honeymoon. Not the whole volume. But that's how startlingly great it is. And we went to Savannah on our honeymoon and people are mentioned in those journals are buried in Savannah and as you walk by those graves you see those great names like Oglethorpe. And they turn up in those journals. Radical change. 
when it seems as though things were at their darkest, no matter how wicked things are, and they are wicked amongst us and around us today, in the churches, the unfaithfulness in the churches, especially the big denominational churches, the wickedness that's around us, God is about to do something great. The third thing is this. Be true to your calling then. Be true to your calling. That's all you've got to do is be true to your calling. Be obedient to that calling. Trust God and risk your ego, risk your identity, risk your coolness, risk your acceptability, risk losing friends, risk making enemies at work, Risk it all to be obedient to the Lord and see what he does. I think most of you know that this past week, my sister died of a stroke. I've already lost a brother through a heart attack. Last year, in October, I went to Australia to meet two of my brothers and spend a couple of weeks there that I might take the opportunity while I still had it and they were alive to share with them the gospel. This past weekend, just a week ago, my sister had a massive stroke. She's 20-some years younger than I am, 57, and died. I remember in the past, she and her husband, Charles, my Charlie, my sister's name is Mary, were at such odds with each other that he beat up on my sister. I went down to where they were living in Knoxville, Tennessee to visit with my sister in one of those centers for abused women. Spent a day with her down there. Then went to a big church in the city that I knew of and spoke with the pastor and got that church to move around my sister and find support and help for her. While they were separated, their two children had to be ferried around by their dad, who'd beaten up my sister. And they wanted to go to Sunday school, and he took them. And then, wonder of wonders, the silver ring thing, which started at this church basically, now is a national and an international ministry to kids for sexual abstinence. The Silver Ring thing arrived in Knoxville, Tennessee, for a performance. We sent down money for those two children, Trey and Chelsea, to go to the Silver Ring thing. And guess who had to take them? Their dad. And he sat at the back of the auditorium while the silver ring thing happened. And guess what? That evening, he came to know Jesus. God so struck him with what his life had been that he ended up in the back of the church weeping and sobbing. They thought he was having an an emotional breakdown. And he called me several days later. My sister came on the phone and said, here, Charlie's got something to say to you. And he's sobbing at the other end of the phone saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done to you and to your sister, my wife, and I've given my life to Jesus. 
And then when the silver ring came thing on the silver ring thing came through on subsequent appointments in Knoxville, my brother-in-law was one of the great promoters around the city. Now I tell you that in the context of he just losing his wife, of those two children, one of them now in university, training to be a doctor, coming to faith, and me losing my sister. And in the midst of the pain of the loss, I know that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, Jesus, who was three days and three nights in the tomb, was risen to glory, raised and alive, and the great Savior of that family. I say to you, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful to your calling. God is giving you another opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. Thank you for being here with us and calling us again and addressing us again and speaking to us again and giving us another opportunity, one more opportunity to be loyal and faithful and surrender our egos and wills to you. And in the midst of whatever's going on in our lives and our families, whatever discouragements pounded us emotionally with the affairs of the world and our own nation. Give us eyes to see you, living Lord Jesus, and ears to hear you speaking to us, and hearts that are willing and serviceable and ready to yield and obey. And use us, Lord, in our day, in our generation, that we might see you do those great and wondrous things amongst those we hold dear. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.